Hey, we're in um, Exodus chapter 20 today. If you have your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have your Bible, you can fire up the Journey Church International app that will have the entire message built into it today. Um, our ushers have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, just wave your, wave your hand. Wave your hand. I sound like Elmer Fudd. Wave your hand. Um, just raise your hand, and they'll give you a Bible as, uh, as they come down the aisle. And if you don't have one, keep it. We'd love for you to have this one. And pull your notes out of the back of your uh, bulletin so you can follow along today. Because we return to this series that I want to be honest with you has really, really ministered to my soul this summer. I talked to several people this summer that said, Christian, man, when I heard you were doing a, a series on the Ten Commandments, it was like, you know, that's, that's not going to be that big of a deal. They're kind of old school. I know the Ten Commandments, but you've taught me things about the Ten Commandments that I, that I didn't even know existed. And I told everyone who's told me that I'm learning things about the Ten Commandments that I did not even know existed, including today teaching on a commandment that I didn't even know existed because... I had gotten it wrong my entire life. God has so radically opened my eyes to the Ten Commandments this summer that I really think like my life, my life as the preacher um, has been changed by learning what I've learned and trying to implement it into my own life. So what we do every week is we read all Ten Commandments and then we come back and we study a few. Today we'll read all ten. We'll study Commandments number eight and nine. Here's what it says, Exodus chapter 20. It says, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery, commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. That was commandment number three. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. Commandment five, Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Commandment six, you shall not murder. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment eight, you shall not steal. Commandment nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Commandment ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And there are the ten commandments. There are the rules that God gives people to live in relationship with him. But you need to understand the relationship came before the rules. We've said every week in this series that before God told us to follow any rules, he offered us a relationship. And here's what God said in Exodus chapter 19. If you would like to become my treasured possession, if you would like to become my special people, a kingdom of priests that basically exists to show the world who God is, if you would like to be a holy nation, the word holy means set apart to be different. If you would like to be different for a purpose then God said, I can show you how to do that. It was as if God got down on one knee and proposed to the nation of Israel and said, would you like to come into a lifetime relationship with me? And the people of Israel said, we would. And God said, great, here's what that relationship looks like. And from that, we get the Ten Commandments. Now, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Peter says, if we've come into a relationship with Jesus, that to Jesus, we've become his treasured possession. We've become his chosen people. 
We've become a kingdom of priests. We've become a holy nation. So the apostle Peter basically said, when you decide to follow Jesus, when you say yes to Jesus, when you start a relationship with Jesus, the Ten Commandments apply to you too, and they will guide you in that relationship with Jesus. Jesus was asked, what's the most important thing we need to know? Out of all these 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, what's the most important thing? Give me the summary version. Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything kind of falls into one of those two categories. So how do we learn to love God with everything we have? The Ten Commandments show us how to do that. How do we learn to love our neighbor as we would love ourselves? The Ten Commandments show us how to do that. So what we're learning as we learn the Ten Commandments is how to love God and how to love people. And today we come to Commandments 8 and 9. Here they are one more time in Exodus 20, 15 and 2016. We're learning how to love people through the Ten Commandments. And here are the commands of the day. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Can I confess a sin to you? Like, will you be my priest for a minute? Can I, can I sit down in confessional and just, can, can we talk? Um, when I was in high school, I didn't listen to Christian music. Like, it barely existed. There was a guy named Carmen that did some weird things. There was, a, there was like a, you know, a band named Striper, I think. Um, my mom liked a lady named Sandy Patty. I mean, like, there just wasn't much out there for me. Um, so I like to listen to, like, pretty heavy music. Like, that was the soundtrack of my car and especially of my weightlifting. My pregame music was, was pretty heavy music, and it was not Christian music. Um, ACDC, um, some of you are saying yes, like don't amen that, like, we're in church, you're like yes, <laughs> hallelujah, praise God, and you're like no, no, um, ACDC, Pantera, um, White Zombie, um, Guns N' Roses, Megadeth, Metallica, like those were my, those were my tapes that became CDs, you know, like, you, like a tape where you'd play one side and when it would stop, you'd pull it out and flip it over and play the other side, it was like the first whip you did, like you whipped the tape in there, like pow, um, I just made that up, we, we better better post this service because that was cool. Um, but like, <laughs> but, but one of my, I can't believe I just did that. Danielle is going to regret missing that. Um, but one of my favorite songs, like one of my, on my pregame mix, one of my favorite songs was Enter Sandman by Metallica. I mean, it's just, it's just mean, man. It's tough and it, it just gets your blood boiling. And I would just, for years, I listened to this song in my head um, and you know how you kind of make up words to the song that you think that you hear, you know, as you go along? So I had sung this song forever and ever. There's this chorus in this song that says, Something's wrong, shut the light, heavy thoughts tonight, and they aren't of snow white. Dreams of war, dreams of liars, dreams of dragon's fire, and of things that will bite. Like, that's the chorus. And they say, you know, sleep with one eye open, gripping your pillow tight. You know, it's like I can, like, hear the music in my head. Well, forever I sang that song in my head like this. Something's wrong, shut the light, heavy thoughts tonight, and they aren't a snow white. Dreams of war, dreams of liar, dreams of dragon's fire, and a baked apple pie. Like, it's just how it sounded in my head. For some reason, the first time I heard that baked apple pie came into my head. So I'm driving to a game with a friend one day, and I'm kind of singing that under my breath. And he stopped when I said that, and he said, what'd you just say? And I was like, and, and he's like, no, what did, what did you say? And I said, and a baked apple pie. And he started laughing. He was like, what is scary about a baked apple pie under your bed? I, like, I don't know. Yeah, maybe they don't like warm fruit. I mean, I, I'm not sure. I just, 
I always thought it said that. And he's like, dude, that is, so he pulled out the lyrics. He's like, that is not the words. It's end of things that will bite. And I was like, okay, got it. But forever I had, I had sung that song wrong in my head and out loud. I found out this week that I've been doing that with one of the Ten Commandments. If you were to ask me to kind of rattle off the Ten Commandments, you know, I, I would say, don't, you know, no gods before me, um, and, and, you know, no idols, and don't take God's name in vain, and honor the Sabbath, and honor mom and dad, and don't um, kill, and, and don't steal, um, you know, and I would say, don't lie, and don't covet. You know, I, I, I would throw those in there, and I would say, those are the Ten Commandments. I found out this week, did you know that you shall not lie is not one of the Ten Commandments? I'm not saying you should lie, but I'm saying thou shalt not lie is not a commandment like Metallica didn't sing about apple pie. Like, like it just didn't happen. Just like don't use God's name in vain doesn't mean anything about cussing. And just like honor the Sabbath really doesn't mean a whole lot about going to church, you shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor has very little to do with lying. You see, when we look at the final five commandments, they all deal specifically in our interactions with people and how our interactions hurt or take away from another person. The last five aren't as much about integrity as they are about interactions with people. The first four teaches integrity. If you honor God, you'll have integrity, and here's what all your interactions will look like. See, this commandment isn't don't lie about whether or not you ate the last cookie. This commandment has much more to do with watch the way you talk about people. Watch the things that you say about people. Watch the gossip that you listen to about people. God is saying you don't want to get into any kind of false conversations about other people. Watch the way you talk about others and other groups who are around you. And it's interesting, as I began to dig deeper into this commandment, it's interesting what I found out from Jesus. Do you know that Jesus and the Apostle Paul summarized what I call the people commandments the exact same way? And because Jesus came first, it means that Paul not only quoted from Jesus, but Paul had to have studied closely what Jesus said to be able to teach what he's going to teach us today. In Matthew 19, it says, A man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you, why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There's only one who does good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Now I stopped right there because I thought that's not a commandment. Like Jesus added one that's not a commandment. That's not in the list of 10, love your neighbor as yourself. The apostle Paul in answering the exact same question would, would show us why Jesus threw that in there and how valuable that statement was in Romans 13. Paul said, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And then Paul would go on to teach us how to love and live without sharing false testimony about our neighbor in a loving way. And here's what I found out as I began to study this deeply. By understanding Jesus' insights on the people commands, the Apostle Paul reveals to us first why we break them so often, and then he reveals to us how we keep them. By studying what Jesus said about specifically these two things, don't steal and 
don't give false testimony against your neighbor. By studying what Jesus had to say about those things, Paul identified why we break the people commands so often and how we can keep the people commands. And that's what I want to show you today. First, we see the motives behind breaking the people commandments. Paul said if, you're, if you are engaged in tension with people, if you're not able to keep the people commands, here's why. I can show you why. He expands on this thought of how to love your neighbor He expands on this thought of don't steal and speaking truthfully to a neighbor in the exact same text. So Paul to the church in Ephesians, if you have your Bible, as a matter of fact, I'd love for you to go there so you can maybe mark this in your Bible. It's a great text to see. Paul must be teaching the Ephesians the same thing we're learning here today. He's got to be breaking down the Ephesians 4 text, commandments number 8 and 9, because he references them both. And then he tells us why we break these commandments in Ephesians chapter 4. Why do we break the people commandments? Why can't we live and love people the way that God wants us to? The Apostle Paul gives us that answer. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25 and going to verse 32. Paul says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Right there, you should underline that because he's referencing specifically now the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Paul flips that and says, speak truthfully to your neighbor. So he's given a positive of the negative command. Speak truthfully to your neighbor for we are all members in one body. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and don't give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing. So here's another one. Commandment number eight now and nine. He's packaged together just like we're doing today. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ and God forgave you. In Romans chapter 13, the apostle Paul, after he teaches on love your neighbor as yourself, this kind of sums up everything. He goes on to talk about ways we interact with people that aren't loving. And he says this, let us behave decently As in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. You know, as you read these two texts that both stem from loving your neighbor as yourself, we see kind of eight motives that live behind how we speak to people, how we speak about people, how we speak into situations. Paul said, here are the things going on inside you that keep causing you to break the commandments of how God wants you to love people. And Paul says, behave decently like it's daytime. Like he's saying, wake up to these realities. Wake up to the reality that this might live deep inside you. What are they? Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, or defined probably more correctly, harsh words, slander, malice, which is hatred, dissension, jealousy. Paul said, here's the fact. You cannot follow the people commands if these emotions are present in your soul. It's impossible to really love people 
if you have bitterness in your heart. It's impossible to love people the way that God wants you to if you've got rage going on or anger or, or you're always using harsh words towards a person or a group of people or a scenario or if you're constantly slandering someone or listening to it. If you've got malice or hatred or dissension or jealousy, Paul says the more of these that are found in your life, the more miserable your inner life is going to be. So how's that list look like for you? Can you honestly say as you sit here today that you've got no bitterness, no rage, no anger about anything? There's not a person or a circumstance that causes you to respond harshly. No slander, no malice or hatred of anyone or anything. There's no dissension in any relationship that you're living in in life. There's no jealousy about whatever somebody else is maybe achieving or has that you don't have. The Apostle Paul says if these things are in your heart anywhere, you're really going to struggle loving people the way that Jesus wants you to love people. And here's the fact. According to Ephesians 4, the devil needs only one of these areas in your life to keep you from loving your neighbor the way Jesus wants you to. Only one. He doesn't need you to be jealous and have dissension and hatred and slander or harsh words or anger or rage if he can keep you just a little bitter towards your ex. He just needs one. He, he doesn't need you to be bitter and have anger and harsh words or slander or dissension or jealousy as long as he keeps a little spot for malice towards a group of people or towards an old company or an old boss. Just one little thing in, in your heart. Here's how Paul describes it in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. He says, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And don't give the devil a foothold. Any of you mountain climbers, rock climbers? At youth camp this year, there was a big thing floating in the, the lake that was, that was called the iceberg. It was a big blob that all of our kids wanted to climb up and then jump off the other side. And the people who were particularly drawn to this were our middle schoolers, like our sixth and seventh graders who really wanted to get up it, but who were really not strong enough to get all the way up there themselves. They just didn't have enough upper body strength in their arms and in their hands. So a lot of us counselors and leaders spent our time trying to help the little kids get up the iceberg so they could jump off the back. It was like, the, the, I mean, the big thing of camp to get up the iceberg and get down the back. So we would go down, and here's what the leaders would do. We realized there's no way the kids were going to make it up unless they could get a foothold. So we would kind of swim in with them, we'd get their hands hooked, and then we would, we would take the feet of the kids and we would lift them up from the water and stick them in a foothold because the minute their feet were solid and they could stand up, they had it, bang, just right up. And all the leaders would stand on the shore and they're like, to the right, to the right, you know, to the left, just up a little bit. We knew if we could find them a foothold, they'd get all the way up. They would not only be able to hold their ground, they'd be able to gain ground on the iceberg. I feel like spiritually that the demons of Satan's army do the same thing. They sit on the shore of our life and they scream to each other what foothold we need to have so that things will remain in our life. It's like one demon yelling to another, you know, just to the right, just to the right. He's got that bitterness. If we could, if we could keep him hanging on to that bitterness from his first marriage, we got him. We got him if he can stay with it. Right there, that, that anger. Let's, let's take him back to that thing that happened in junior high that caused his soul to be forever anger. Let's, if we can hang on, if we can get him to hang on to that anger, we've got him. If we can get her to keep that bitterness over the boss who fired her inappropriately for something. If we can get her to hang on to that bitterness, we've got her. And it's like Satan's looking at your life and he's looking at these emotions and he's saying, okay, which one of these things can I hold people back spiritually 
with so that their heart will be broken towards people and they won't treat people the way that Jesus wants them to be treated. You know, as you look at those things, I believe if we're not able to move past these emotions in our life, then we can't really grow spiritually the way God wants us to. In 2017 as a church, we're going to bring out a small group curriculum that I believe is going to be the most powerful thing we've ever done as a church. It's a curriculum called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And it's basically the thought of if you're not able to deal with your past and overcome the negative emotions that are now part of your DNA, at some point you stop growing spiritually. You can learn as much of the Bible as you want. You memorize verses, you can worship. But if you are not able to deal with your emotional past, at some point you can't keep moving forward spiritually. A few years ago, our church did a, a small group campaign that was called Story, and a lot of people got to tell their story. And just being able to speak the what of their story really moved a lot of people spiritually. This is the why of your story. This is why you're shaped like you are, why you made the decisions that you did. I pray that everyone in our church can become emotionally healthy because until we become emotionally healthy, we can't love like Jesus. That's what Paul's saying in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, these are the motives that are always going to get in the way. But he said, there's a medicine. So you don't have to worry about the motives if you have the medicine. And the medicine is awesome. The medicine needed to keep the people commandments. Now, what are the people commandments? We've looked at four so far. Shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not give false testimony to your neighbor. Paul said it's very simple. The medicine is very simple, but it's got a few steps you have to follow. If we can learn to see people the way that Jesus sees people, we'll be able to keep the people commandments. Like if we will see every human being through the eyes of Jesus and how Jesus sees them, and if we can care for every human being and every group in humanity, the way that Jesus cares for them, we'll be able to keep the commandments. So the medicine is learning how to become more like Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 13, 13 and 14. He gives the motives and then he gives the medicine right after it. Let us, not behave, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual morality, debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and don't think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Clothe yourself with Jesus Christ and you'll be able to keep the people commandments. Now, what does that mean? That's actually a massive phrase in Scripture. Because in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, and they disobeyed God, they felt ashamed. They felt separated from God. Um, They were in conflict with each other. Like, everything went wrong because of sin. And they tried to cover themselves with leaves from the garden, but it was inadequate to bring them back together and to bring them to God. So the Bible says in the Garden of Eden, God killed two of the animals He created, And then he took their skins and gave them to Adam and Eve as a covering. And that covering allowed Adam and Eve's shame to go away. It allowed Adam and Eve's tension between each other to go away. And it allowed their separation from God to go away. God's covering allowed them to be right with him and right with each other. And they were the only ones who existed in the world at the time. So when the Apostle Paul says, clothe yourself with Jesus Christ, Paul said, if you will learn how to wrap your life with Jesus it will put you at a place where you feel close to God and where you will be close with all the people in your life. You'll live the way you're supposed to. Now, I don't know if you like to see movies. Danielle and I 
love to see movies. Uh, every Friday, that's our, our staff ministry team Sabbath. Danielle and I try to go see a movie if there's a good movie. In the last decade or so, these Avengers movies have become like some of our favorites. The, the individual ones, the guys all together, we just enjoy going to see those and we usually take our kids with us. And my favorite character in the Avengers is not Iron Man, but the man in the suit, Tony Stark. Like I just love the character of Tony Stark. He, you know, I just find him witty, funny. It's, it, I just enjoy listening to his banter with all the people. And if you've not seen the Avengers and you don't know who Tony Stark is, he's the guy who makes everyone's superhero outfit. So when they find out like what their thing is that they do well, he makes an outfit to fit that thing so that they can go live in their superpower. As I read this this week, and I thought about Paul saying, put on Jesus, I thought, man, I wish I could get Tony Stark to make me like a Jesus suit. Like, like if I could, like I've got this superpower, according to the Bible, I've got this superpower inside me called the Holy Spirit, which changes me so that I'll live like Jesus. But if I can't surround that with a suit that allows me to flex and protect my superpower, sometimes I don't act like Jesus. And I thought, man, Paul, what he's basically doing is giving us a daily reminder every day we wake up, don't forget to put on your Jesus suit. Every day you wake up, go to your closet, wrap your life in Jesus, and let your superpower, the Holy Spirit inside of you, let, you li- let it live so that people can see Jesus in you. Say, well, what does a Jesus suit look like? Does it have wings? Does it have a helmet? Does it have guns? Does it shoot webs? What does the Jesus suit look like that allows your spiritual superpower, the Holy Spirit, in you to live? Well, the answer is simple. Putting it into practice is going to take effort. In Ephesians 4.32, here's what Paul said the Jesus suit looks like. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, God forgave you. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul puts this at the bottom of the list of, here's how you make sure you always speak honestly about a neighbor. Here's how you don't steal. You get rid of all these things in your spirit that are hurting you, and then you just become like Jesus. Just do these three things. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, God forgave you. So how do we put on our Jesus suit? What does it look like? Number one, kindness. When we live and operate and speak and post on social media in kindness, it allows people to see Jesus. Romans 2.4 said, you know, ultimately people who are really close to God, it's not because they're fear of hell. It's not because even they're really their understanding of God's punishment or wrath. It's the kindness of God. It's God's heart that draws them into relationship. Romans 2.4 says, do you not realize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You want to show the world Jesus? Be nice to them. Speak with kindness. What does kindness look like? You really don't want to know the answer to that question. But Paul gives it. Here's what kindness looks like according to Ephesians 4.29. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Did your words this week do that? Did your words this week, for anyone who could hear them, were your words this week based on the needs of people around you, and did your words this week build them up? Because you realize the need they have? Did your social media post? Those are words. 
Did you post your social media to an audience that had needs? And according to their needs, did you speak with such kindness? Did anyone who would have read what you had to put, regardless of their profession or their race, would have been encouraged and strengthened by your words? That's what Jesus' kindness looks like. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So Paul says every day, put on your Jesus suit and speak words that are beneficial to everyone. Understand what people's needs are and speak words that build everyone up. Paul then says you have to be compassionate. Number two, this is one of the strongest words in the entire New Testament, compassionate. When you really understand what this word means, compassionate. The word compassionate in the Greek language that it was originally written in in Ephesians 4 means to feel the same thing. That's what compassionate means. Compassionate means interact with people from their point of view. Feel what they are feeling. Feel what they are going through. This word compassionate is a word that means from the bowels. It's an interesting word, right, in the Greek language, from the bowels. You say, what does that mean? Have you ever seen someone experience an injury, like live, and immediately your stomach hurt? Like it was just like, ooh, that's what compassion means. For that instance, you feel what they feel compassion. This week as I watched the video of Alton Sterling laying in Baton Rouge, shot by police officers, it hurt my stomach. It didn't just hurt my heart, it hurt my stomach. I watched it once and then thought, just because I hadn't even heard the news, I just watched it and I thought, oh my goodness, it, it hurt my stomach. When I later would watch the video of Philando Castile of St. Paul, Minnesota, laying in his car with his girlfriend and her four-year-old daughter in the back. And I listened to even the fear in the police officer's voice that you could hear speaking. It, it, hurt, it hurt. It hurt. Like, like, like double over hurt. Like, oh, that's not right. When I saw the news feed come up of what had happened in Dallas and the five police officers killed, it hurt my stomach. That's what compassionate means. To feel the same thing. You know, I've had so many people this week say, Christian, what's, what's, what's the right attitude? What's the right take on what has happened this week? How as a Christian do I respond? And the answer is, is a very difficult answer. The answer is we'll try to feel the same thing. Is, that, is everyone going through anything try to feel what they're feeling, which is almost impossible. It really, really is. But we can try. You know, I was, I was raised in a very small town in Ohio, I had 87 kids in my graduating class. One of them was black. We had two black kids in our entire school, kindergarten through senior high, Donnie, who was in my class, and his little sister. So I wasn't raised around a black community. I can't watch what's happened and pass judgment because I don't know what people are feeling. Certainly didn't at 18. When I went away to play football in college, most of my teammates, many of my best friends, my roommates became black guys from all over America. And I began to see life a little differently as they told me their stories. They told me their life. 
is I went places with them and I watched how people looked at them. And then I never even picked up on that before. And they would just tell me, my nickname in college was Noose. They would just say, Noose is different. You just don't get it, man. It's different. And they would tell me my, their stories. And, and I began to understand a little bit maybe of what was going on, maybe just a little bit. And then my sisters, both married black men who became great friends of mine from Chicago. And I remember when those guys came to my hometown for the first time and we would walk into restaurants that we'd been walking in the last 15 years and everyone who knew us well would get really, really quiet. And I remember feeling ashamed and thinking, Man, is it, like, is it really like, is it really like this? And I began to understand a little bit. Then a few years ago, I sat in an airport in, in a Middle Eastern country that is not friendly with the United States of America, me and one other Westerner, and I think I got it more, like for the first time. Because the way those people were looking, they did not want us there. Didn't look like they wanted us alive. We never communicated verbally. They'd never met us, but the color of my skin and the culture that I came from, you could tell they didn't want us there. A few days later, the rest of our group flew in there, and they basically begged me to change our flights. They said, we don't ever want to go spend another six-hour layover there. That was the most uncomfortable experience of our lives. And I began to think, is that how some people, like, is that every day for some people in America just because of the color of their skin? And then six weeks ago, my 10-year-old nephew who plays on an all-white baseball team just south of Chicago had a kid on his team who called him the N-word, a word I won't even utter from this stage. And it hurt him so bad that he didn't want to go back and play. And when my brother-in-law and sister approached the coach and said, what are we going to do? They said, well, when he's comfortable, he can come back. So after two weeks of no practice, two weeks of no game, he got up the guts to go back because of the color of his skin. Now, after a lifetime of that, we can't really, if we're not willing to really try to feel the same thing, we can't, we can't speak to protesters who've been going through that their entire life. That's not fair. That's not feeling in your gut what some people may have experienced for a lifetime. Same thing with police officers. We have several police officers in our congregation that I'm very close to. We don't know what they deal with on a daily basis. We don't know how their heart skips a beat every time they get out of their patrol car, every time they hear a fight. We, don't, we, can't, we can't understand that. My uncle was a, a career police officer, retired as the police chief of the town that he lived in after 25, 30 years. Some of my great friends are police officers in our church and in our city today. Have you ever cried with a cop that was involved in an officer-involved shooting hours after it happened? I have. And it's just sad. You don't want to protest. You're just sad. You're just sad for the heaviness of humanity. It's like, Lord, it wasn't supposed to be. Like, life is not supposed to be this way. And I feel like this week, even within the community of Christianity, people are kind of lining up sides and we've stopped to try to feel the same thing. We've, we've stopped to try to feel what every individual is going through on all these different bases is when those five officers were shot in Dallas by some rogue person who could be inspired by whatever. He's inspired by Satan at the end of the day. Don't give a movement a name that belongs to the devil. Only satanic, demonic stuff leads you to pick up a gun and just start picking off people. You just hurt. 
You say, Christian, what's, what is the right response? Well, first is to have compassion. But do you know that Ecclesiastes 3, 4? Ecclesiastes 3 talks about life and said, here's all the things that are going to happen in life. But do you know Ecclesiastes 3, 4 said there are some times in life where the only appropriate answer is to weep and to mourn. There's a time to celebrate, right? There's, you know, season for all this stuff. But there are some seasons where the only appropriate thing is to weep and mourn. It's just a season of mourning. You say, what's the, what's the right response of somebody who wants to show the world Jesus? One, you feel the same thing. You try to feel the same thing as every person going through anything. And then two, you just mourn. Because Jesus says in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn because they'll, they'll be comforted. So what's the, white, the right response? You know, another word in Scripture for compassion and another English word for that Greek word is tenderhearted. It means just having a soft heart towards people. What's the answer? Just, man, just have a softer heart towards everything going on. You know how you tenderize meat? For those of you who like to grill and cook stuff, you just beat the heck out of it until it's soft. I feel like our country's had the heck beat out of it emotionally this week. And you know what? I look at that and say, if that's, if that's what it takes to soften our hearts, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to I I learn... I want to learn to feel the same thing so that I can love like Jesus. So we'll finish our message in a minute, but could we just stop as a congregation right now and pray for all those hurting all over our country. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name right now. And Lord, we pray for the family of Alton Sterling. We pray for the community of Baton Rouge. We pray for the officers in the police department that were involved in that. And Lord, none of us were close enough to know everything, but we can feel for the humanity involved. We can mourn for a loss of life and chaos and maybe racism and bigotry and things we don't even understand. We can be sad for that. So God, would you be with Mr. Sterling's family as they walk through this week trying to make funeral preparations while a world of chaos descends on them and around them? And would you protect those officers in that community as they try to carry out their function? God, would you be with the family of Phil... Castile, St. Paul, Minnesota. God, I think about that four-year-old little girl who was sitting in the back seat and watched everything. Lord, it makes me sick to my stomach. If that's what compassion is, I want that. I want to feel what another might feel so my heart will be soft towards them. God, for that family, for that community, for that law enforcement community, God, would you be with them? Would you just help them? And watch over that situation. And God, for the five Dallas police officers whose names weren't even released till early this morning, or we pray for them by name. God, for their families and for that community and for their churches. God, would you just be there in their midst? God, would you allow the rhetoric that has been so tense to change even a little bit just because people today have been in church and they've been reminded to respond and act like Jesus all over America? Would you be with the pastors and the churches in Dallas? And Lord, might they push people towards Jesus? And Lord, would you be with every protester who's had a lifetime of sitting on the bench because people have treated them poorly because of the color of their skin? And God, would you open their hearts to a Jewish man named Jesus who loves their heart and doesn't even see their race? God, for all the police officers who will police 
with a massive awareness of retaliation? God, would you open up their heart to see that Jesus is the only one who offers ultimate security and protection for eternity? And God, somehow through this situation, might you soften our hearts to understand your gospel so that people can see you in us? And God, if no one will do it but us, will you let our church do that? And God, will you allow our community to see Jesus in us so they might understand who you really are as we try to follow your commands? Father, as we just break in this message to bring this need of our country to you, we just ask that you'll be with it and bless it. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me try to revert back to finishing this message now. You know, I had a counselor tell me as he tried to help me work through these eight things in my life, bitterness, rage, anger. um, And we talked about people who had hurt me. He said, Christian, you do understand that hurt people usually hurt people. Like you do understand the people who have hurt you have probably been so wounded in their past that they they don't see it as hurt. They just see it as normal. And as you think about the people in your life that are hurting or that have hurt you, Would you be willing to look past their actions to maybe their hurt? You know, anyone who's mastered anything has spent years in an environment that teaches it every day, whether a a subject curriculum at college or whether angry, the people in your life that that appear to have a master's in being mean, the people in your life that appear to have like a doctoral level degree in harsh words that hurt people, the people in your life who seem to be masters at manipulation, do you know how they learned those things? They probably learned them by sitting in an environment every day that taught them how to do that. They saw it, and now they do it. It's just the life they live. So compassion teaches you to try to feel what someone else feels, like Jesus did. And then thirdly, and we'll end on this, that Jesus' suit is forgiving. The Jesus suit is forgiving, but here's the interesting thing. Here's maybe the really, really hard thing. Do you know that forgiveness is a mirror that has multiple faces in it? Say, what do you you mean by that? Forgiveness is a mirror that has multiple faces. Do you know that the New Testament rarely ever mentions forgiveness without talking about forgiving? Let me say that again. The New Testament rarely talks about being forgiven without mentioning how that drives you to forgive. Ephesians 4.32 says this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, and then the part that I don't like, just as Christ God forgave you. Forgive people the same way Jesus forgives you. Jesus even dug a little deeper. When he taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, here's what he taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. I believe that's the hardest prayer in Scripture, and I don't pray it often. Think about if the next time you messed up and you needed Jesus to forgive you, if you said this, Lord, I'm so sorry, I've messed up again. Please forgive me in the exact same way I'm forgiving this person who's hurt me most in life. Would you pray that? That's hard for me to pray. God, I want you to forgive me the exact same way that I'm forgiving someone who hurt me deeply. I don't want Jesus to forgive me. I want him to forgive me the way that he forgives, not the way that I forgive. Because human forgiveness often looks like this. I'll forgive you, but I'll never speak to you again. I'll forgive you, but we will never be together again. I'll forgive you, but I'll I'll never forget it. 
That's how we forgive. But Jesus says, ask me to forgive you the same way you forgive others. It's like, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know that I want to pray that. He expands two verses later about forgiveness when he says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. I wish Matthew 6.15 wasn't in the Bible. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your father won't forgive you your sins. I would like to cross that verse out and redact it. I don't want it to be true. Because the hardest part of the Jesus suit for me is forgiveness. I can learn to be kind. I, I, can, I can learn to be compassionate. But to just let go and love people like they never did anything, I mean, that's what we want Jesus to do for us. That's hard. But Jesus says, when you look in the mirror and see yourself forgiven, the first thing a forgiven person does is they begin to see the faces of people they need to forgive. It's a mirror with multiple faces. You can't look in in the mirror and see yourself as forgiven without seeing the images of those who you need to forgive. Jesus said, that is the way it works. So when we understand how we've been forgiven, forgiveness becomes contagious. Jesus forgives us. We forgive others. They forgive others. That's the way forgiveness worked, if we can put on the Jesus suit. But can I throw you another kind of theological curveball today? Do you know the first person to ever put on the Jesus suit was God? That's what the Bible says. In Philippians chapter 2, we learn the process of how God came to earth to become Jesus for us. Here's what it says. I'll just read it to you. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, God came down to earth as Jesus. He put on the Jesus suit. Why? So that by being found in appearance as a man, he could humble himself. And become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. God put on the Jesus suit. He came down to earth as Jesus to stand in our place. Maybe there's no more powerful understanding of the gospel than what has happened this week because here's how you need to understand the gospel. When, when Jesus stood at that convenience store in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and he saw Alton Sterling laying under those police officers, Jesus didn't feel in his gut what Alton Sterling was going through. Instead, Jesus, as only he could, kind of called a timeout in the course of history, and he removed Alton Sterling from that position, and he laid down under those police officers, and he took the bullets to the chest. That's what Jesus did. He stepped in to die our death. You see, when Jesus was in St. Paul, Minnesota, and Phil Castile was pulled over by that police officer, and the police officer was scared out of his mind, and whatever happened, happened. Jesus didn't stand by and say, man, I feel really bad for this. Jesus got in the car, he put on the seatbelt, and he took the bullets, and at the same time, he held the gun that fired so that he could strengthen one emotionally while dying a death for another one. And Jesus didn't stand by from a rooftop in Dallas or a perch in heaven watching five officers be killed, but in the course of time, it's as if he stepped into history, and he put on their riot gear, and he put on their vest, and he put on their blue, and he took the bullets for them to die their death. You see, the gospel does not say that Jesus died on a cross for you. The gospel says Jesus died on the cross as you. Your death, your cross, your bullets, 
your accident, your tragedy. The Bible says that all men are destined to die, but God put on the Jesus suit and he came down to planet earth to die our physical and spiritual death for us so that humanity wouldn't experience a physical death, but just a passing of a soul from earth to eternity. That's what Jesus did for you. That is the picture of the gospel. Jesus didn't die on his cross for your life. He died on your cross as your life. They were your nails that went into his hands, your nails that went into his feet, the sword that was aimed for your side that went into his side. He carried your cross, not his own. His cross may have said the king of the Jews, but it might as well have had my name on it because I had a cross designed for me. And Jesus said, no, 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 you get off the cross. I will die your death for you so you can live in eternity with me. Do you understand the gospel? Kindness, compassion, forgiveness. In our place, Jesus steps in. And then he said, all I want you to do, I don't want you to take anyone's place. But boy, I want you to understand their place emotionally and be kind, be compassionate, be forgiving. I'm not gonna ask you to step into anyone else's death, but you can breathe life into him by living the life of Jesus among them. Would you do that? The question I wanna end with today is do our actions towards people prove that we understand how kind and how compassionate and how forgiving Jesus was towards us? Do our actions prove that? Do our words prove that? Do our attitudes prove that? Do our biases prove that? Does our bigotry prove that? Does our social media prove that? Or does the life we live not really understand what Jesus did for us and what we should be willing to do for others? You know, as we close today, we've talked about a lot. We've talked a long time. We're way over time. But I think it'd be wrong to close today without you identifying some of the motives that live in the misery of your soul. That list of eight things. Do you have any of those living inside of you? Why would you leave here today without identifying those and asking God for healing? Why would you leave today without identifying the people in the circumstances behind those feelings, seeing their face, not just in front of you, but behind you in a mirror of forgiveness and saying, if God forgave me, I, I have to forgive them. It proves that I understand forgiveness. And then putting on your Jesus suit and showing them kindness by trying to feel what people feel, compassion, and by always offering forgiveness. What healing do you need today? Who do you need to forgive today? Would you bow your